Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital. All talk here in Washington, D.C. turns to President-elect Joe Biden's administration. Historically speaking, the markets have performed better when there is divided government. The biggest pressure for physical stimulus is an uptick in cases. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. State governments control elections. That's in the Constitution. I think that we can expect a smooth, thoughtful, methodical transition. This is... Is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grosso sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. A second COVID vaccine on the horizon, but when will it be available? President-elect Joe Biden talks about the economy for the first time since the election. Those Trump election lawsuits are crumbling, but the president still refuses to concede. And the Senate is still up for grabs. Which side has the advantage in the Georgia runoff? Another sign that the hunt by scientists and pharmaceutical companies for a COVID-19 vaccine is paying off. Moderna said its COVID-19 vaccine was 94.5% effective in a preliminary analysis of a large late-stage clinical trial. Joining me is Max Neeson, Bloomberg Opinion healthcare and tech columnist. So, Max, this news of a vaccine comes just a week after a similar shot developed by Pfizer. Is this all as promising as it sounds? Um, in, in many ways, it is, yes. Uh, these are really excellent results, especially for vaccines that have been developed um, such so quickly, um, and especially in, in this sort of sped-up pandemic setting. Seeing 90-plus percent efficacy is, is really quite exciting. Of course, that, that inevitably comes with some caveats, um, as, you know, any medical research does, any clinical trial. Um, for example, we don't know whether these vaccines are capable of, of preventing either infection outright or, or transmitting the virus onwards. We just know that they prevent symptomatic COVID disease. But the really nice thing about the Moderna data in particular is that on top of that sort of headline protection rate. We also got a little bit more detail, which is that the the vaccine was successful in preventing severe disease as well. That that's something that people have been curious about and obviously a key a key thing for any vaccine. And that it appeared to work in, in different uh, subgroups that were in the trial, for example, in older adults, which are obviously a, a really crucial population. So um you know really, really exciting data and and good to, to wake up to it this morning. So, Max, does that mean from what you said and from what I read, it sounds like Moderna's vaccine is better in many ways than Pfizer's? Uh, I wouldn't go quite so far as to say that okay. when it comes to the, the efficacy data. Um, it, it, does, it does come ahead marginally, but, but those couple of percent in a clinical trial setting aren't going to be the big difference. Where there is a distinction is in terms of, of distribution. Uh, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine is a little bit more finicky, requires storage at colder temperatures, whereas the Moderna vaccine um, lasts longer in a refrigerator. That'll make distribution a little bit easier. So if there is a really a big distinction that can be drawn at this point, I, I would say that's it rather than any difference in the data so far, um, at least until we get a lot more detail. So how much more testing do they have to do before they can start manufacturing large quantities of these? 
Well, the, the nice thing is that they've already started manufacturing large quantities, and that was a deliberate choice um, because usually if, if you, you wait to manufacture until you have really good confirmatory data. But, but that's something that doesn't quite work in a pandemic um, where you really need as many doses as quickly as possible. So there are already existing doses, but it will take some time to, to scale up to, to really the massive amounts we'll need to vaccinate the U.S. or, or world the world as a whole. So um, not, 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 I don't think testing is really the barrier here. I think that we can probably expect at least an emergency regulatory approval. It just will take some more time just to, to get all of that capacity online and, and really start manufacturing these vaccines at scale. Are we talking about months or weeks? Uh, it, it depends on what exactly you mean. If you're talking about having enough vaccine to uh, vaccinate of the population to a point where you get to vaccine-induced herd immunity, um, then we are, in fact, talking months. Um, but okay, there will be, you know, tens of millions of doses available this year for uh, high-risk populations, and that'll be a really nice start, although not something that's going to significantly alter the trajectory of the pandemic, given um, the point that we are right now. Still still some time before you actually get that formal approval and more time before it's rolled out and actually begins to have an effect because on top of you know the need to actually distribute it and, and start injecting people, both are two-dose shots that are given about a, a little bit less than a month apart. So you have to wait for a little bit until you actually are protected. So um, this next period is going to be tough from a virus perspective, even with the really good news on these vaccines. So what I've been wondering is, how, how is it determined, like, which of the vaccines you can get, whether you can get the, if the Moderna or the Pfizer, if they're both out there on the market, is there going to be a choice? Um, that, that's something that, that very much needs to be determined. And my expectation is that, for the most part, people will will get get you know take what they can get in terms of the vaccine, just because supplies are going to be so constrained that it's going to be really difficult for people to pick and choose. Um, the thing that would would be nice to see in the long run is to begin to try to look uh, to have some comparison trials to get some more solid data about the difference between these two vaccines and any others that come along. So you can really start to narrow down on, on which really is the best and which is best suited for different populations. If there is going to be a division in who gets what, it, it may have more to do with, at this point, before we get more data, um, the, the storage requirements than uh, it does and any actual uh, feature of the vaccine, because we, we don't have that much to differentiate that at that point. But you will see Pfizer's vaccine used potentially more in institutional settings, and Moderna's used maybe, um, for example, in rural settings that don't have those fancy freezers. I, I think that may be the difference in the early running. So speaking about the other vaccines that are still in development, what does this mean for those vaccines? Uh, so good and bad. On, on one hand, having two different vaccines succeed and succeed so well um, should make everybody relatively optimistic about the the potential for, for others because all of the major vaccines in development are targeting uh, the same spike protein. The same They're attempting to develop immune response against the same feature of the coronavirus. Uh, so they are they would, are more likely to succeed given that these have. On the other hand, there is some potential that it will become harder uh, to test these vaccines to get good data because people might be less inclined to join a placebo-controlled trial um, if they have an opportunity to get uh, a vaccine they know works. If not immediately, if you're most of the population, at least in you know a relatively visible point in the future. I'm hoping that's not the case because we'll need um, just about all of the above uh, to, to get the whole world vaccinated. And until we really do that, until we have a truly global effort and enough supply for everybody, we're not truly going to have the pandemic contained. Just about a minute and a half here, Max. But does it seem to you as if there's less negative talk recently about the vaccine and whether or not people will take it? it seems to be more positive. 
Yeah, I do think that's the case, and, and I'm very hopeful that that'll hold up. Um, you know, the the fact that these vaccines came in looking so very effective um, and, and above expectations, certainly mine, uh, I, I think will make people more inclined to get them if they they feel that they have a really good chance of, of getting a protective effect. We'll see. Um, you know, we're still at the stage where, where it's theoretical as opposed to people being faced with the decision to actually go and, and get vaccinated. But I'm hopeful that these positive efficacy results will make the rollout easier and reduce hesitancy. Thanks so much, Max. I always appreciate hearing from you and your analysis. That's Bloomberg Opinion tech and science columnist Max Neeson. Coming up next on Sound On, we're going to be talking about all those many, many election lawsuits across the country. President Trump still refusing to concede the election, and he's looking at those lawsuits as a way out. Well, we'll be talking to an expert about whether there really is any way out right now by the lawsuits or even by the election recount that's going on in Georgia. I'm June Grasso, sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grasso sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. This headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal, Airbnb is filing for an IPO, seeking to list on the NASDAQ under ABNB. Again, that's Airbnb filing for an IPO. It's been one legal setback after another in President Trump's attempt to flick the election results through lawsuits, which claimed massive voter fraud and election irregularities without any evidence. Many of the complaints have been tossed by the courts or dropped, and no votes have been validated. Here's former Trump National Security Advisor John Bolton on ABC's This Week. Where are their silver dollars? Where is the evidence? Uh, I think as every day goes by, it's clearer and clearer there isn't any evidence. On Friday, nine cases in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Arizona were either dismissed or dropped. This morning, lawsuits in Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania were dropped. And yesterday, the Trump campaign scrapped a major part of its federal lawsuit challenging the election results in Pennsylvania. Joining me is Kermit Roosevelt, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor. Thanks for having me. I, I've been asking since the lawsuits have been filed whether there's any kind of strategy that people see. Do you see any strategy in, in the lawsuits that have been filed coming from the Trump campaign? Well, there are a couple of possible strategies. Um, neither of them or none of them really relies on the lawsuit to actually change the outcome of the election. So one of the things that they could have been trying to do was to get a state court to block state officials from certifying the results of the election, in which case the state legislature could come in and certify its own slate of electors. Um, but since the lawsuits don't really seem to be getting any traction with the courts, that's not going to work. So what remains is really the possibility 
that they're using this as uh, a way of keeping the Republicans energized for the Georgia runoff, or maybe that they're using it just to make Trump feel better and to maintain support with his his voters so they won't think of him as a loser, uh, or possibly really that they're just doing this for fundraising. But at, at this point, it really doesn't look to me like it's aimed at the election outcome. Do, are most of the cases being dismissed because they just haven't come up with any evidence that the courts can consider, any you know valid evidence to prove that there was any kind of fraud? Yeah, I think in most cases they came in with these very broad, very sweeping allegations of fraud, you know, saying this is an outrage and democracy has been subverted and this terrible thing has been done. And then they didn't really have any evidence. And the lawyers, you know, being officers of the court and subject to discipline if they advance a, a position in bad faith, if you look at what the lawyers actually said in court, they very often said we're not alleging fraud. Um, you know, we have some technical issue that maybe we think something went wrong with a small number of ballots. And those those lawsuits just amount to nothing because um, with such a small number of ballots, there's no chance of changing the outcome. This election was really not very close, it turns out. And, and that's something I've been looking at these lawsuits, the different lawsuits, and trying to see if any of them has the capacity to turn a state in Trump's favor. For example, in Arizona at a hearing, it was discovered that one challenge only involved 191 ballots. Are there any are there any lawsuits that you see that have the ability to turn a state? The only way that I think they could turn a state is by persuading the court that there was some sort of large unquantifiable fraud. So everything that you can quantify where they're like it's this many ballots, they don't hit the margin. So I think the, the only possible chance that they had was to convince a court there's a large amount of fraud and the election results have to be set aside. Um, and, and that was where the Republican legislatures could maybe come in and help them. And as, as far as, you know, convincing the courts, a lot of what they seem to be charging or they have been charging is that, you know, their election observers weren't given a fair access to watching the ballots being counted. And this has been disproven time and time again. And Trump's lawyers narrowed their case in Pennsylvania on Sunday and they abandoned that argument. What's left in that case? What's left in that case is basically an argument about ballot curing. So in some counties in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania, according to the complaint, and they tended to be Democratic counties, Democratic-leaning counties, um, voters who made a mistake with their mail-in ballot were told that and given an opportunity to fix it. And in some Republican-leaning counties, they say they weren't. Um, now, again, this is a small and probably quantifiable number of ballots that wouldn't affect the margin. So their only hope with this really is to say it's an equal protection violation to have these different standards or different approaches to voting in different counties. And that's actually an argument that worked in Bush v. Gore. But interestingly, it was just rejected by the Third Circuit. Um, so it looks as though that argument is not going to go anywhere in Pennsylvania. President Trump has repeatedly said that this is going to be decided by the Supreme Court and has implied that one of these cases is going to the Supreme Court. Do you see any case that might be headed to the Supreme Court right now? Well, you know, once they get to a state Supreme Court or a federal court of appeals and lose, which seems to be what's happening, they can seek Supreme Court review. But I think it's very unlikely that the Supreme Court will take the case if Trump continues to lose, because that would really be injecting itself needlessly into the election dispute. If Trump were winning these cases, then the rationale for Supreme Court involvement would be much greater. But if the courts are just dismissing them as baseless, I don't, I don't see a need for the Supreme Court to get involved, and I would assume that it wouldn't want to. Now, the other day, President Trump said that Rudy Giuliani was going to be leading the legal effort as far as the election lawsuits are concerned. And Rudy Giuliani, not known as an election lawyer at all, what does it say to you that he's going to lead the effort instead of some well-known election lawyer? It's another testament to the weakness of the claims, I think, because if you had good claims, 
This is, you know, regardless of your ideological views, and there are certainly some people who would want this to support Trump. But, you know, people want a high-profile, exciting, meritorious case. That's the kind of case that really adds to your reputation. So the fact that you're not having lawyers with a national profile signing on to this suggests, I think, that people think it would hurt them to be associated with it. And that suggests that they think these suits are frivolous. If you look at the Pennsylvania litigation, actually, um, their, their representation has been pared down to a Philadelphia divorce attorney who's on the filings. Um, and someone That's what I was going Texas to ask firm. you, because I understand that lawyers with Porter Wright, Morris and Arthur submitted a filing saying they were withdrawing as counsel in the Pennsylvania case. Did they say why they're withdrawing? Uh, they didn't say. They didn't say. It's, it's hard to tell. Um, probably either they had some sort of disagreement with the client about the litigation strategy um, or they, they just decided that this was not a good case for them to be associated with. Well, uh, President Trump is still promising that there's going to be one big lawsuit, and I assume that that's just impossible in our country where, you know, it's litigated state by state as far as elections are concerned. Uh, well, yes. So it, it does. It would have to be done state by state. It's becoming increasingly clear, I think, that there's there's not going to be any significant legal decision, um, you know, which leaves us with the situation where the, the Trump campaign has been just baselessly attacking the integrity of the United States democratic process, um, which is in itself terrible. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor. That's Professor Kermit Roosevelt, and he's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania Cary School of Law. Coming up next on Sound On, we're going to be talking about Joe Biden's statements today, his address about the economy, his first since becoming president-elect. We'll talk about what he said and how difficult it will be to accomplish some of that. I'm June Grasso, sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Live from our nation's capital. All talk here in Washington, D.C. turns to President-elect Joe Biden's administration. Historically speaking, the markets have performed better when there is divided government. The biggest pressure for physical stimulus is an uptick in cases. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. State governments control elections. That's in the Constitution. I think that we can expect a smooth, thoughtful, methodical transition. This is... Is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grasso sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. President-elect Joe Biden talks about the economy for the first time since the election. President Trump still refuses to concede, hampering the transition. And the Senate is still up for grabs. Which side has the advantage in the Georgia runoff? In his first remarks on the economy since being elected, President-elect Joe Biden said today that containing the coronavirus pandemic is a key to the nation's economic recovery, and he called for cooperation between business and government. Joining me are two guests, Lester Munston, principal at government relations firm's BGR Group. He also serves as adjunct faculty at Johns Hopkins University. And Lincoln Mitchell, writer and political analyst. He teaches political science at Columbia University. So, Lester, I'll start with you. We heard the Biden administration's 
economic plan, which is based on the Build Back Better proposals offered during the campaign. Did you hear anything new in Biden's talk today? Uh, not necessarily. You know, he's he's going to be dealing with some very difficult uh, political situations. I think even regardless of who wins the seats in Georgia, I think even if Democrats win both of those seats, he's still going to have a tough time selling his agenda to Congress. It's just going to be very close. Uh, he needs he needs to be in the middle and try to govern from the middle. Uh, the, the bigger plans he's been talking about are just not going to be doable in this environment. Lincoln, what's your take? I believe that the Build Back Better campaign included something like $2 trillion in spending on clean energy and infrastructure. Will Biden be able to get those kinds of proposals through? Well, I hope I don't disappoint you if I say that I agree with my colleague in Washington. No, um, that's fine. You're allowed to agree. We like okay. agreement, actually. I mean, one, one way to think about this is that if, you know, and, and I think this is unlikely, but if the Democrats win both of these seats in Georgia, then any piece of legislation that Joe Biden wants to pass, I'm actually less worried about the House, the House, pardon me, because I think Nancy Pelosi can deliver the votes for, for, what, needs, for what needs to be done there if, if Biden and she work together. But in the Senate, You've got to get Joe Manchin, Dianne Feinstein, John Tester, in other words, the most conservative Democrats on board, to pass anything. And that's the best-case scenario. The worst-case scenario for Biden is that you're going to need you know, one or two Republicans, which means I don't know who that would be, but Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, it's not clear to me, Rob Portman, who that might be. But he has to – he can only govern from the center here. The one thing I would add is that a variable that we don't know is what is his popularity – when he takes over in January. If he's at 60 percent, he has a very different, stronger ability to persuade and lean on senators than if he's in, you know, 50 or 48, which is, you know, about as high as Trump ever got. So that's why that's driving a lot of his strategy at the moment. So, Lester, do you think that'll be enough, his mandate from the people, especially if the Democrats don't win one, at least, of those two seats and they have that many more people in the Senate to try to to get on their side? Well, the other, you know, the I, I uh, agree with my friend, my non-Beltway friend. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's the president has a really, really hard lift here for another reason, which is it appears he's not running for re-election. Uh, there, was, there was talk during the campaign that he was a, he, if he won, he would be a one-term president versus his age. He will be the oldest president we've ever had uh, on Inauguration Day. Um, you know, so fear, you know, Washington doesn't – you don't have friends in Washington. If you want a, a friend, get a dog. People are very hard-eyed about what's going on politically. And if the president isn't running for re-election, that means he's, he's not going to be – he can't use his base to help other politicians. The reason President Trump has a lot of influence with Republicans is because they respect or fear his base. President Biden's not going to have that phenomenon. So he's going to be reliant on uh, Speaker Pelosi getting her folks in order or cutting deals with Mitch McConnell – Neither one of those really kind of leads you to a place where he's going to be able to do big things, particularly domestically. Two trillion dollars on any program is probably out of the question. Uh, President Biden's going to have more flexibility internationally where he can act without the direct blessing of Congress. And, of course, um, on coronavirus, where he probably does have a mandate to take a tougher approach than this administration, is where he could make a difference domestically. But these larger social programs, I think, are probably off the table. Lincoln, has he said that he's not going to run again? I thought that during the, you know, the campaign he said that he wouldn't say that. Well, he has not formally said that. And this is a, a tough situation for him because he would be, I believe, 82 when he would begin a hypothetical second term. And 82 is quite old, even for someone like Biden, who I think is in relatively good shape for, for a man of his age. But there's another piece of this as well. What, you know, the, the problem with not running or having people think you're not running is essentially you're a lame duck from day one. And it's very hard to govern as a lame duck. But there's another problem as well, which is, you know, his uh, running mate, Kamala Harris, on the one hand, he presented her, I think, to the Democratic voters and to the electorate as, you know, this is a bridge to a new kind of a Democratic Party. This is the new face of the Democratic Party. And Senator Harris 
played that role very well in the election. I think she was ultimately an asset to the ticket. However, there is a cadre of Democratic senators. You know, pretty much every senator gets up in the morning, looks himself in the mirror, and says, I'm looking at a president, <laughs> right? And in this case, let's just focus on the Democratic side of the aisle, right? There's a lot of people there that as soon – if they think Biden is going to run for a second term – there is an incentive to work with Biden during his first term to make him look good to so that the Democrats can succeed at the polls in 2022 and 2024, which would be his reelection year. But as soon as that changes, then there's a fear he's been Kamala Harris. Essentially, if you're another Democrat, if you're a Democratic senator at that point, walks into a nomination that she didn't earn. And the only way you can stop Harris from doing that has to be going at the government a little bit, They're going at the president a little bit, because the president is giving Harris cover, and they're a team. So as soon as it, the perception is that Biden isn't running for a second term, you incentivize all those senators who don't want to look around and say, if I don't go for it now, it might be an eight-year wait. So he really is a quandary. This was something that, you know, Democrats may have thought a little bit about, but there was so much going on in the primary, and this is such a kind of a second-level question. But it is a real handicap as soon as that perception that he's not running for a second term he's a lame duck and lame ducks don't get things done in washington lester let me ask you this about a minute and a half here so does that mean that every president in their second term doesn't get anything done and certainly every vice president seems to have a deserved or undeserved path to the presidency uh i think that's that's largely true particularly when it, when applied to domestic politics you know president obama had a lot of achievements his legislatively, domestically, his first two years in 2009 and 2010. Then he lost the House to the Republicans, and four years later he lost the Senate to the Republicans. He didn't have a lot of domestic achievements. I think possibly, you know, raising taxes, uh, which Democrats use an achievement, uh, happened during that time. But otherwise, not a lot. So this, this is not a, a new phenomenon. Congress is meant, Congress and the president are not designed to work together. They're designed to represent different interests, and they only come together when it appears that they, they've both got similar mandates from the American people. And that's just, that's just not going to be the case on January 20th, or at least not for very long, or at least not for issues beyond the coronavirus pandemic. All right, you're both going to stay with me. Coming up on Sound On, we're going to be talking about the president still refusing to concede the election and how that's hampering the transition. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grosso sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. Well, it's been one setback after another in President Trump attempt to flip the election results through lawsuits or through recounts. He claimed massive voter fraud and election irregularities without any evidence and still refusing to concede the election. This afternoon in Delaware, President-elect Joe Biden, meeting virtually with industry and labor leaders, said he's still hoping President Trump comes around. In response to a question from ABC senior congressional correspondent Mary Bruce about how he can possibly be prepared without briefings, here's their exchange. It doesn't appear that the president is going to come around anytime soon and admit defeat. So what are you going to do? What options do you have to try and ensure that you are ready to go on day one? deal with every individual organization in the country from business to labor republicans and democrats to try to pull together a serious and consistent plan so we're ready on day one i've been talking to lincoln mitchell writer and political analyst teaches political science at columbia university and lester monson principal at government relations firms bgr group he also serves as adjunct faculty at johns hopkins university lester sometimes it seems as if the president is hinting that he knows he's lost but then he seems to take it back in a tweet what what's well, the situation he... does he know 
I think uh, I think we have a president who is a, a master of staying in the news and getting people to pay attention to him. And that is exactly what he's doing. We all know how this is going to end up with uh, him as the former president and Joe Biden as the president on, June, on January 20th. Uh, in the meantime, I think President Trump is going to try to make as much news as he can. And if it's doing this crazy dance about <clears throat> whether he really won the election or not, and obviously he lost it, uh, he's going to do that. And so everyone's paying attention to his tweets. They're trying to parse them down to you know, different parts. What do they mean? What do they not mean? Is he going to reverse himself? It's a little bit of a cliffhanger. He's kind of turning. Uh, he's finding a narrative conflict where none really exists. So, Lincoln, are we ever going to hear the words, I concede, from President Trump? No, we're never going to hear the words, I concede, from President Trump. And if you were to, you know, as a journalist, if you were to go to Mar-a-Lago five years from now with the older president, former President Trump, and interview him, he would still claim he won this election. A concession is a, is a statement of grace and dignity, and those are not characteristics that we see a lot of in Donald Trump over the course of his almost three quarters of a century on this planet. Now, on some level, it doesn't matter, because it, his lack of a concession doesn't mean that Biden doesn't become president, right? That process is going to happen. Biden will become the president. However, slowing down the transition process is not good for America. It's not good for the new administration, but it's really not good for the stability of the country. And that's more troubling. The fact that he doesn't believe he lost and, and that many, I think, of the closest people around him, like his sons, are helping build a world where he won and he'll surround himself by people who say he won and it was stolen, and few people will believe that outside of his political base. That's one thing. But the fact that he's making it harder for this transition to happen, which is a legal process. There are you know, things that need to be happening, documents that need to be signed, funds that need to be released. And by stopping that, it is really playing a destructive role. But it's not going to make him president for another four years or something. So, Lester, as Lincoln said, federal agencies are required by law to prepare for a transition even before the election, but the flurry, that activity that would normally be taking place is on hold. And from what I've read, I mean, there are offices that are ready to have transition team members. There are briefing books that are ready and nothing is being done. How much might that hurt Joe Biden when he actually does get into office? Well, <clears throat> I have to say, I think there, this is a little overblown, at least right now. Um, we're probably a week away from the president's legal options running out of steam. And then uh, on December 14th, the Electoral College will demonstrate conclusively that Joe Biden is the president-elect. That's not that far away. Uh, the, the job of these transition teams is really to identify personnel to, to find the positions that they want to put their political appointees into. Joe Biden has been around Washington for a very long time. He's surrounded by, you know, very competent Democrats uh, who know how the government works. His transition will be just fine. The, the one place where I, I am a little concerned might be on coronavirus, where you want to have the good things that the Trump administration is doing be protected in the Biden administration as he tries to add things that, that will also be beneficial. And so the, the earlier you can have conversations between global health and public health officials over coronavirus, the better. As for the rest of the agencies, I think a couple more weeks isn't really going to hurt much of the transition. We've still got some time. Lincoln, the president also is doing various things in agencies, like, like uh, firing the uh, national security. Um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm trying to remember what his the, position is. Which, the defense secretary. Um, the defense secretary, right, firing uh, the defense secretary and also apparently some changes at the Pentagon. Um, there's, there's some rumors that he's poised to order troop cuts from Afghanistan and Iraq. Can he do a lot of damage on the way out? I mean, the short answer to that is yes. The, the longer answer to that is less clear. I mean, firing Mark Esper, you know, I, I'm not sure what real impact that has. I'm not sure, you know, the, the Defense Department can kind of keep running itself, especially for a short period of time. And also, Mark Esper wasn't making decisions on foreign, major big-picture decisions anyway. Donald Trump was, and maybe Jared Kushner was, too. So that kind of thing doesn't bother me. You know, more, you know, things like deciding to drill um, up in the Arctic, like things like for oil, things like that, these kind of um, 
decisions that that he knows that he has no the politics don't matter anymore. And also, the you know I would expect that the grift will continue until the very end. So the way for Donald Trump and his cronies to get more again enrich themselves more at the expense one way or the other of the American people that will not end until January twentieth. And he will be more incentivized to do that, knowing he doesn't have to go before voters, knowing that, that it doesn't really matter anymore. So that's really what I'm most concerned about, not a series of you know presidential laws being passed or anything like that. I don't, I don't sense that's what we have to fear. All right. Both of you still staying with me. And the Senate is still up for grabs. We've just been talking about how important getting a majority in the Senate would be for Biden to press forward with his different initiatives. So which side has the advantage in that Georgia runoff? I'm June Grasso sitting in for Kevin Cirilli, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grosso, sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. Joe Biden turned Georgia blue, but will Democrats be able to repeat Biden's feat in two Senate runoffs in that state on January 5th? Democrats need to win both races to gain control of the Senate. John Ossoff, who's facing off against Senator David Perdue in the Georgia runoff election, spoke on ABC's This Week. Meanwhile, Senator David Perdue spoke to supporters with the message of keeping the state from going blue. Trump is leaving, whether he knows it or not. And the question now is how we're going to contain this pandemic, which is raging out of control, which is spreading at an accelerating rate. Stand with us. And let's make darn sure that the road to socialism never runs through the state of Georgia. I've been talking to Lester Munson, principal at government relations firm BGR Group and serves as adjunct faculty at Johns Hopkins University. And Lincoln Mitchell, writer and political analyst. He teaches political science at Columbia University. Lincoln, which, which side has the advantage in the Georgia runoffs? Georgia has become a very purple state, and we think of it historically over the last 20, 30 years as a, as a solidly Republican state. But, you know, the governor's race there in 2018 was very close. The Republican won, and there was some controversy around that. The presidential uh, top of the ticket this year was very close, and Biden won, but by a very narrow margin. So my sense is that it's anyone's race. Having said that, the most, for me, what this is going to come down to, and, and you know, it's Pundits always say it's going to come down to turnout, which is like saying it's going to come down to who gets the most votes. That's not exactly insightful. To say that. But let me try to make it a little more insightful. Both sides are trying to keep the energy and the momentum that they had in November, right? And particularly on the Democratic side, where there was a lot of groups, particularly among African Americans in Georgia, Stacey Abrams, but also other groups, really trying to register and get out new votes. And whichever side can keep that energy going through January 5th is going to win. The wild, and, and so there's not two wild cards here. One is hard to imagine a voter going in and saying, you know, I like this Ossoff guy, but I also like Loeffler, right? Or, you know, I like Purdue, but this Warnock guy really excites me. So it's, it's really hard to imagine each, each uh, party getting one seat there. It's probably, I mean, I, I think either Democrats get two or they get, or, or, or they get uh, no, no seats. So, and the last thing is that 
you know, January 5th, a lot could be happening between now and then. If COVID continues to get worse, that will change perhaps people's perceptions of the Republican Party and the loyalty of these two senators to Donald Trump. If Joe Biden appears to somehow stumble in the transition, that could move things the other way. So we can't, this, this election is, you know, it's six weeks from now, but it's two months from the election. And it will occur in a different political world. Lincoln, what's your take and what's the effect of not having Donald Trump on the ballot? Well, it cuts two ways. Donald Trump has oh, a real I'm ability sorry. to get I meant voters Lester. out. I meant, I meant Lester. Oh, I'm I want to give Lester a chance here, Lincoln. Yeah, I'm sorry. You both have, have, you have two names with two L's. Two L's, Lester and Lincoln. You go very well together. And two L's, too. Yes. Thank oh, you're you. right. Thank you. Go ahead, Leslie. Uh, you take it because I'm, I'm wondering I, about Trump not being on the ballot. Yeah, I think that's the huge factor here, right? There, there's um, there was massive turnout for the election on November third because the question of whether or not to keep Trump really motivated both sides. Uh, on June fifth, two months later, he's not on the ballot. Joe Biden's not on the ballot. There's not going to be nearly as many voters. So each side is trying to appeal to the folks who are most likely to come out to vote. On the Republican side, those are going to be the people who want to get back at the Democrats for ousting President Trump. So you're seeing both Senator Perdue and Senator Loeffler, who are both uh, incumbents, the two Republican candidates, are campaigning as if this is a national election, saying, I will stop the Biden agenda. They're trying to drive those hardcore most most dedicated voters to the polls, thinking that if they can get more of their base out, they're going to win. And so they're, they're not even talking about their opponents necessarily. They're talking about the larger meta questions of where the country is going, uh, capitalism versus socialism, uh, the Trump legacy, things like that, because they're trying to get those most devoted voters to show up because they know it's not going to be anything like November 3rd, and they've got to work hard to get uh, even half of those people to show up. Lincoln, and I mean Lincoln this time. I'm serious this time. So yeah. what, you know, what's your take on the fact that there are two incumbents? The Democrats are running against two incumbents, and apparently there is you know, money to be spent on both sides. I don't think either side is going to be you know, looking for money. Well, there's going to be an enormous amount of money going into this race. And the Democratic side is going to be, can you keep that suburban, you know, suburbs of Atlanta, who are mostly white voters, can you keep them in, in the Biden camp, which in this case means voting for uh, Warnock and Ossoff? And it's going to be, that, that's what this race, I mean, I think the turnout question is very important, but a little bit of persuasion, you know, Biden... One of the biggest changes in this election in terms of the exit polls was that white male voters went from Biden, uh, excuse me, Trump went from winning white male voters by 31 percent, according to the exit polls, against Clinton to 23 percent against um, against Biden. Now, that's that's still a resounding win. And white male voters are still kind of the demographic group that makes up the strongest part of Trump's base. But that's a persuasion, right? That's that's a result of persuading voters that Trump isn't the way to go. And if they can keep the pressure on persuasion, especially as Trump is likely to become less, not more appealing to the middle of the road centrist voters, that could help the Democrats. Of course, they also have to get their vote out, and that's where most of the money should be going. Um, Lester, how much do you think that, that that refrain that we've heard time and time again about, you know, uh, socialism and, you know, the Democrats in this race are going to turn the country into socialists. How much will that matter? We just heard that from the from Purdue in, in the soundbite. How much do people really buy that? Well, uh, it does seem to matter to voters. And, and I will say, while I, I certainly don't think that Joe Biden is going to turn the country socialist, uh, uh, there were a at least a couple of Democratic presidential candidates who basically called themselves socialists. Uh, Democrats have kind of brought this on themselves. Uh, the far left of, the, of their party, the, the hardcore progressives, uh, are advocating policies that are essentially socialist policies. So I think uh, while they are not likely to be in positions of, of um, 
authority in deciding what the policies will be. They are in the party that is. And that is, so it becomes a, a fair a fair game for discussion for Republicans. And it and it and it's a very quick way of explaining a complex political situation. So politicians will use it. Uh, it's being used in Georgia, and that's that's a big going to be a big part of the debate. Lincoln, how much is going to depend? We have all these outsiders that are going to descend on Georgia. We've already seen uh, Senator Marco Rubio, I believe, was was in Georgia campaigning. How much is going to depend on those outsiders or the celebrity kind of influence? I mean, we're in a weird, we're in a very different moment now with regards to Senate races and sometimes congressional races than we were even 20 years ago. In some sense, every Senate race, I mean, Tip O'Neill famously said all politics is local, but in 2020, all politics is national, right? So folks on both sides of the aisle in this race are trying to nationalize it. This is, a, this is, this is Trump versus Biden again, and to some real important way, it is. However, the only people that matter in this election really are voters in Georgia. And I, when you, when you get in this situation, you can overplay your hand by nationalizing it. Voters in Georgia want this, you know, they're our, I mean, if you're living in Georgia, this is our senator we're talking about. I want to say who my senator is. I don't want Marco Rubio or Kamala Harris you know, on, on the Democratic side or anyone else coming in and tell me, telling me, particularly voters who are those swing voters. And I think those voters still matter uh, in this election. And the other side of that is that every Senate race you know, if you're on the outside, you see it as, you know, it, like I said, it feels national, but there always are local aspects to it. So the candidates in this race that can really perhaps speak most persuasively about what's going to help develop Georgia's economy, about what's going to be the most fluent on the politics and issues faced in Georgia, is going to be an advantage. And Marco Rubio is not right going to move there. that needle. Coming up, we're going to be talking about what is on the radar for all of us. That's coming up. I'm June Grasso, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grosso, sitting in for Kevin Cirilli, and I've been talking to Lester Munson, principal at government relations firms BGR Group, and serves as adjunct faculty at Johns Hopkins University, and Lincoln Mitchell, writer and political analyst. He teaches political science at Columbia University. So now we come time for, I think, Kevin's favorite part of the show, which is what's on your radar. So, Lincoln, I'll start with you. What's on your radar? Well, I'm watching events in my home state where our governor, my old governor, Gavin Newsom, uh, recently went to dinner at the French Laundry, which is considered, I've never been there, but it's one of the best restaurants in the United States, <laughs> an outdoor dinner, but clearly not consistent with, and perhaps not the rules, but certainly the, the, the message of taking COVID seriously. But what I'm really watching here is who does he appoint to Kamala Harris's Senate seat? Every politician, these Senate seats don't come up too often. Every politician in California, every Democratic politician, is eyeing this, and he has a lot of questions. He's got gender issues. There's never in modern times been a Mexican-American senator from California. There's some older hands that are around. And Xavier Becerra, who is the attorney general, is on some of the short list for national attorney general. So Gavin Newsom is going to have some important appointments in his, on his hands. He's never going to be president, right? Kamala Harris will be the, the candidate from San Francisco who runs in the future for president, not Gavin Newsom. But he could really reshape California politics and be a kingmaker in the most important state in the country for a generation over the next coming months. Is there a front runner? Talk of a front runner in that? No. I mean, Xavier Becerra, the attorney general, is thought of by the current attorney general, is thought of by some as the front runner because that way Gavin could then appoint someone to succeed him, right? Barbara Lee, the congresswoman uh, from, from the East Bay, Karen Bass from L.A., if he wants to appoint another African-American American woman. It, it, the demographics here are very important. There's some older pe people from the past whose names have been bandied about. Willie Brown, the former Speaker of the Assembly and Mayor of San Francisco. Some have floated the name Adam Schiff. So, it, you know, California, particularly on the Democratic side of the aisle, is a state very rich and very, and very diverse political talent. And it's not clear he will go, where, where Gavin will go. And that the other side of this is that Dianne Feinstein is, you know, she, she's not a young woman anymore. Um, and, it, you know, he could potentially have two Senate appointments, and he could appoint himself to one of those seats. So there's a lot of ways this could go. 
appointing yourself. All right. <laughs> Let's not hope for that. Lester Munson, what is on your radar? So I'm following something a little different. I'm watching Ethiopia, uh, which a lot of folks will remember for its famine back in the 1980s. Things have been relatively calm since then. There is now a civil war brewing in Ethiopia between the central government uh, and the Tigrayans, who are uh, in the province to the in the north of the country. At the same time, Ethiopia is in a huge disagreement with Egypt over the fact that Ethiopia has dammed up the Nile River to produce hydroelectric power for itself. The Egyptians are very upset. They're worried that uh, there'll be less Nile waters flowing uh, downriver to Egypt, where they rely on those waters for agricultural um, their agricultural needs. Uh, so there's a lot of things going on in Ethiopia. It's a country of well over 100 million people. We've uh, seen what happens when things go badly there before. I'm a little worried that we might be seeing that again. All right, we'll keep our eye on that. Now, I am focusing on what's on my radar. I should put it in the correct format. What's on my radar is a court hearing tomorrow on Pennsylvania's motion to dismiss a lawsuit that the campaign filed to prevent the state from certifying Biden as a winner of its 20 electoral votes. And there's been this huge focus on Pennsylvania and all the lawsuits there, but the lawsuits have either been withdrawn, most of them, or uh, they've been dismissed by the court. So I think that this is the big one that's left so far. And if the Trump campaign loses this as well, I think it might deflate the campaign's legal efforts. On a personal note, I want to know how fast the Barack Obama memoir is going to sell out and when I can get a copy without having to wait online for it. Are either of you going to read Barack Obama's memoir? Uh, I'm still working my way through John Bolton's memoir, but I'd be, I'd be happy to read Barack Obama's when I'm done with that one. I, I, I could, without having read it, I will say with some certainty that he's a better writer than John Bolton. Um, I, read Mich I, I read Michelle Obama's memoir, which I actually really enjoyed. I suspect I will read Barack Obama's memoir, but one of the things I've been doing to get through this pandemic is allowing myself to spend more time reading. So I just got an enormous delivery from a, a local bookstore, and so Barack Obama's memoir will have to wait. Well, now, after you're done with uh, John Bolton's, what's the next one on your list, Lester? Uh, I'm actually um, uh, reading a book by, by a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute uh, about the vulnerabilities of the People's Republic of China. It's kind of a, a different take on China as this rising colossus in the world, and instead focuses on all of the, the various problems in Chinese society that we're kind of looking past as we focus on their economic growth. And uh, I'm just forgetting the name of it at the moment, but it's quite compelling. I see you're, you read light literature. I see that. <laughs> you really have focused on it. So I, the problem is always, though, I think with all of us that work in this area, if you work in news or government, is that you're constantly reading you know, news stories and you're constantly like, I am so tired of, of watching just news on TV because if you don't watch it, then the next minute you'll be behind because it, it, it moves so fast. So um, I'm wondering when you think we should be watching Lincoln for President Trump to make a, a substantive statement, a substantive statement on what's coming up. Well, I mean, here's apropos what you were saying about not, you know, needing to stay on top of this. Don't watch for that. Go watch The Crown or something. It doesn't matter what Donald Trump says. He's a former president who's not being very gracious about it. And a year from now, he'll still be a former president who isn't being very gracious. We, the, the best thing we can do collectively for the mental health of the 330 million of us, you know, in this country is to not worry about Donald Trump's next tweet or public statement. It doesn't matter if he conceded. He lost. Biden's going to be the president, and that's what matters. I think we're still going to be looking at his tweets at least until uh, January 21st. Lester, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's right. He's going to try to make this, uh, this kind of epilogue to his presidential reality show as interesting as possible. He wants people to focus on him and talk about him. Uh, he's, he was a very, very good reality TV show star. I suspect that's still what he's doing. And by the way, June, I figured out the name of the book. I want to put in a little plug. It's called The China Nightmare by Dan Blumenthal. So far, I'm about 10 pages in. It's terrific. 
How many pages do you have to go? It's only it's it only sounds like a huge book to me. It's, I got about 135 to go. It's quite short, actually. Oh, all right, because it just it, the name itself just sounded like a huge book. I was thinking 300, 400 pages. All He's right, a very well, efficient you. writer. All right, thank you both. It's been so interesting talking to the both of you this evening. So, Lincoln, what do you what do you think is going to happen as far as the inauguration? Are we going to see President Trump on the stage? No, you're not going to see President Trump on the stage. Not even on and, the stage, huh? No. And, 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 and Lester is right. I mean, Trump craves attention more than he craves money, more than he craves, you know, well-done steaks with ketchup, more than he craves anything else. This is his oxygen. And he will do anything he can to keep having that oxygen. But we don't have to give it to him. And he's not going to be on the stage. My suspicion here, if I had to bet, is that he goes to Mar-a-Lago at some point, you know, around Christmas and just kind of stays there. All right. Thank you both. That's Lester Munson, principal at government relations firm BGR Group, and Lincoln Mitchell, writer and political analyst, teacher of political science at Columbia University. I'm June Grasso. I've been sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. We'll be back tomorrow. And you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.